This is BT Wolf, and you're listening to Orange Juice for the Ears on Dub Lab. Today, I'm joined by Australian music entrepreneur, modular founder, and all-round badass Steve Pavlovich, or Pav. Pav secured Nirvana's only Australian tour, still in his 20s, was instrumental in the rise of the big day out, toured acts from Fugazi to the Beastie Boys to Jack Johnson to Daft Punk, founded Modular curated Vivid Live in 2011, and generally possesses something of the Midas touch. Two pins. (laughs) You got it. You figured it out. (laughs) In founding Modular, the indie label, touring company, and lifestyle brand of the 2000s, Pav discovered and gave a home to the Avalanches, Wolf Mother, The Presets, and Tame Impala, to name a few. Not one to do things by halves or because someone tells him, Pav's passion drives all of this and takes him way beyond the point that most people would duck out at. And along the way, he's facilitated the careers of so many. Since we met only a few years ago, he's opened my eyes and ears to more hidden gems than anyone else I know. Pav, it's so good to have you here. Thank you, Billy. It's a pleasure to be here. (laughs) Um, Why do you think I chose Hey, What's Your Name by Coloured Balls? Because you can't pronounce my last name. Oh, my God, damn it, that's great. (laughs) (laughs) Boom. (laughs) Other than that, it's a mighty fine tune and I shared it with you some time ago. But also, what what are you holding right now? I'm holding two pens so I can spell my name correctly for you. And what is the, what's the brand of pen? Sharpie. Aha, got it. I guess the colour balls were at the forefront of the founding of the Sharpie scene from Victoria and Melbourne. Very awesome. Yeah, well... Look them up online, YouTube, it's fantastic. So, you know, just to expand on that point, um, you really have introduced me to so much stuff I just never would have heard of. And, you know, the, like, Coloured Bulls being one of the bands, I knew nothing about the Sharpie culture. Um, And so it feels like you just have uh, a sort of depth in your appreciation of music that covers so many different genres and so much stuff that people just would never hear of otherwise. Uh, well, yeah, I've always, I always loved music, and I can't say it's something I inherited from my immediate family environment. My mum's musical taste was probably uh, Peter, Paul and Mary to Nana Muscuri and back, and nothing really else in between or around it. So, you know, as a young guy growing up, uh, where I grew up, I had a lot of friends uh, that had older brothers and sisters, and so they often exposed me to a lot of kind of stuff, particularly in sort of the 70s and sort of early 80s, and I just found that I just loved music. There was one thing that I was just always kind of super into and always really hungry for and had a, like, vivacious sort of appetite to just keep digging and then, like, just discovering new things and being able to share them with people. And I think ultimately that's why I started doing what I did in, in career-wise is that, you know, I would discover music that I felt was really worthy and I'd like to share with other people, you know. And so I felt like if I liked it, I'm a pretty average dude, someone else will like it, so just keep passing it around, you know. So I love that whole process of finding something going, hey, you should check this out, blah, 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 you know, which makes life fun. So we met um, originally through Janet, amazing Janet, 
um, who just two Theatrical minutes... Theatrical Janet. <laughs> Theatrical Janet. <laughs> um, two minutes before we started this was texting me questions to ask you. Um, and I was in Sydney, I was doing a show, and I got an email from her. And I'd kind of barely mentioned to her that I would be over there, but as soon as I got landed in Sydney, there was this email from Janet being like, okay, you have to meet this guy, Pav. Uh, very typical Janet in terms of just her connecting people. And we hung out at Bondi for the day. Could have been an hour based on whether, you know, you, you were lame or I was lame. But it ended up being the whole day and it was uh, awesome. Um, I'll never forget you on your beach, <laughs> in the Bondi beach, in your inner city threads, <laughs> whilst everyone is sitting around like barely clothed, swimming in the ocean, and there you are just sitting in a black hoodie, black <laughs> jeans, sort of curled up. And, oh, the light, the light. <laughs> that was my first impression. I was like, that's pretty awesome. But then uh, I had like, a wonderful time hanging out with you guys. It was fun. Well, it was, I was d- taking the anti-sexy approach because the beach was generally pretty sexy and I, I didn't realise it would be that hot, so yeah. I was, you know, protecting... It's a pretty strange place down there, like just people got it all out on the beach and it's, it's an interesting place to sit around for a day and just kind of just people watch what's going on, you know, some really ridiculous stuff happening down there. So the idea for this show, you know it pretty well, um, Orange Juice for the Years, it's about looking at some of the music that has made up part of your DNA growing up and you know into what you're doing now. Um, and it's taken, the title of the show is taken from a quote by Oliver Sacks, neurologist, about the power of music. And the quote is, music can lift us out of a depression or move us to tears. It's a remedy, a tonic, an orange juice for the ear. And I just want to ask, what does that quote mean to you, Pav? Everything. <laughs> and that's the way I, I guess I consume music on, on all kinds of levels, whether it's sometimes just for like pure recreation, some wallpaper in the background to your, to your day, or other times it's just sort of the emotive part of it and it can change the way you feel or the mood from, you know, like feeling kind of shitty to uplifting or, you know, the other way, uplifting to shitty pretty quick too, you know. And I think that's the one thing that I, I appreciate the most in music is when it does have sort of an, an emotive quality that has the power to make you feel something, and whether it's like good, bad, positive, whatever, you know. But without that, it becomes pretty bland and pretty vanilla. And I think there's a lot of music I dislike and probably musical genres. Um, well, although that being said, I think every genre's got something great in it, but there's a lot of pedestrianary stuff. And I think a, the majority of those things are the ones that possess the capacity to, to make you feel nothing. You know, that's just such an empty, empty, empty feeling, you know, so. Well, I guess when you contrast that with how much music can make you feel. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, it's like so worlds apart, you know. And I think that's like unfortunate when people are really adept at sort of perhaps, you know, learning patterns or scales or, you know, sort of chords or whatever, and they can, they're proficiently or technically proficient, but they lack any soul or, or sort of, feeling that can make you move in any way so they're basically just robotically punching out patterns on a keyboard or on a guitar or piano or whatever and you know that music I find I really struggle to identify or to be moved by in any way. What else do you find is a tonic in your life? (sighs) Wow (laughs) well you know I really like this won't make any sense to anyone in this part of the world but I love Australian rules football and I think I like it because it's a, a nice foil to everything I'm involved in professional sense, which is more in the creative realm, to just be able to go to something that's purely just grunt, physical, raw, 
primitive <laughs> and Neanderthal. I find that it's a nice escapism from the creative aspects. And I think there's only kind of one way to to, to win that game. It's just like win, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Whereas sometimes when you're working creatively, you're like, well, I could do it this way or I could do it that way. And there's a million different ways. And now you've gotten to know me a bit, you know I probably struggle with choice. <laughs> so if I have to make a decision or choose something, it can be like a really, really sort of taxing, gut-wrenching experience. <laughs> Which this was. Was choosing songs, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, okay, so now I have to ask, what was the first song that imprinted on you? Well, I think, like, one of the first ones I actually recall was Jumping Around the House. I had five siblings at the time, and so my mother was a very stressed individual who had, I think, five kids between the age of 21 and 27 or something. Like, so she really kind of knocked them out. And I think we're all kind of very highly strung sort of children. So we're all like bouncing off the walls. And I heard this song, or I remember singing it pretty vividly. We'd all sing it at her, Mama, my, it's like by Slade. It was like, uh, Mama, we're all crazy now. And I think I think I interpret it as like Mama was crazy. In my mind, that's what I was thinking. She was crazy. And I was, how funny was this song? This is a song about my mum being batshit crazy, about <laughs> having five kids. And then we'd all sing it at her. It was kind of terrible, but like... um. Yeah, so that was one of the first ones I really remember sort of getting down with. Okay, let's take a listen to Mama, We're All Crazy Now by Slade. That was Mama, We're All Crazy Now by Slade. You're listening to Orange Juice for the Ears on Dub Lab. I'm here with the awesome Pav and his OJ bottle and uh, and also, what else, a Scorpio astro- astrological vinyl <laughs> and, and the Buzzcocks in a some sort of fake kitchen. Yeah, like a, sh- a kitchen showroom. Yeah, it looks like a set. Yeah. And that, so that song, that was the first song that imprinted on you um, and you were around the age of six? Yeah, I would have been like six years old then. And then um, from there, it kind of just, you know, evolved to you know, Goofy's Greatest Hits. <laughs> wow, you went that way. <laughs> I went straight into deep. I think it was probably 1975, I remember that record. But that was, again, just really bubblegum, sugar pop music, you know, yummy, yummy, I got love in my tummy and Simple Simon Says and all this kind of stuff. But, um, you know, at the time that that Slade stuff, I think Australia was really, maybe through the 60s and just the really early part of the 70s, it was way more British focused. So I think, you know, the Top of the Pops and all those sort of English shows and um, our sitcoms were like, you know, Benny Hill and the Goodies and all this real English sort of sort of TV, English sort of music. And then I think in the 70s somewhere it sort of changed and flipped and then it was all, you know, American sitcoms and Steve Austin and Six Million Dollar Man and Charlie's Angels and all that kind of stuff sort of flipped gears, you know. So my earliest memories were pretty much around the Slade and that sort of super sort of glam sort of stuff, you know, into uh, good old Goofy's Greatest Hits. <laughs> Slade would feel pretty bad about you going probably from them to Goofy. But well, the thing is, it wasn't actually Goofy. It was just maybe a compilation in Goofy's name and, and image, right? But the music was like legit people. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I think it's like Ohio Express Wait, or something. Wait, Goofy that didn't does. write his own no, songs? No, Goofy didn't oh write his own God, material. And Goofy didn't even speak on the record. It was just... 
I can't have, actually, the only thing I can remember having to do with Goofy was the title, Goofy's Greatest Hits. And you had a Croatian dad, Australian mum. Mm-hmm. You were one of six? Uh, yeah, at that point, one of six. One of six. And was music a big part of your upbringing? Not really. I think, um, yeah, my dad worked a lot. He had to work a couple of jobs. I think when he was like a glass blower in Croatia, maybe. And then he came here, immigrated, had just had to, that was not recognised, had to kind of work with his body sort of stuff, you know, like plumbing, building, blah, blah, blah. And had to work, you know, I guess he, he bred like a rabbit. And so he had to kind of work a few jobs to take care of business. And then my mother uh, was originally in sort of a photo lab, taking pictures and stuff. And then she's a full-time mum. And then eventually she moved on to social work and stuff. And then, I mean, music was not a big part of our family life. I mean... As children, we loved it, and there was, like, this show that was, I guess, like Top of the Pops. It was on every Sunday night called Countdown, and I remember that we had, like, one really super smooth, cool leather chair um, that, you know, it would be a racist who got that chair, and the first in, first dress. So you got that chair, you get to watch, you know, Countdown from the, the luxury seat, completely luxuriated, all the hits of the time, <laughs> whilst everyone was scrawling on the ground and on the couch and stuff. And then I think my musical exposure really happened for me when I started hanging out with the Eddie brothers, Matt and Chris. And their older brothers and sisters at that point were really deeply into Bowie and, like, the Beatles. I mean, I remember hearing, like, you know, Sgt. Pepper's there and the White Album there and all this kind of stuff and then Lou Reed. And so they kind of opened me to this stuff that I just didn't have in my world. So it was super exciting because I guess it was so such an escape from my crazy little family house with my crazy siblings. And what was the can like to grow up in? I can't believe you went for it. Yeah. Canberra was a wonderful city to grow up in, <laughs> Beatty. Um, no, it was a really boring, batshit, horrible town. It's like um, it's the capital of the, of the country. It's, they, uh, it was a, a manufactured city in terms of Sydney and Melbourne arguing over who should be the capital. So they just built a city in the middle. And um, it's pretty dull. It's mostly sort of politicians, public service. I think it's probably like Washington, D.C., probably. No, no disrespect or offence to anyone over there. But, you know, it was very just manufactured. It was very polite. It was just zero culture, you know. And I think as a young kid, it was pretty awesome being there. I mean, I used to like sport a lot and football and running around parks and bikes and blah, blah, blah. So there was a lot of that. But by the age of 12, 13, it was like a cultural wasteland. So I just really wanted to get out of there. What was the first album that shaped who you are? Well, it's definitely the first album I bought that I was really excited about. And I went into uh, uh, like a... I don't know what you call it, something. Anyway, it's called David Jones, this big kind of shopping chain. And so I remember going to the record section and there was David Bowie, Aladdin Stane, staring me in the face going, Pav, take me, take me. And so I just couldn't help looking at it. Plus, because I said, mentioned earlier, hanging out with the Eddie brothers and their family, I was aware of David Bowie and his stuff. And there was something about it that for me was just so different to the world that I lived in. And it was kind of mesmerising and hypnotic just looking at that crazy face with the makeup and lipstick and everything and you know I had no desire to want to look like that but there was something about just the how different it was so it was almost appeared like a little uh mental escape route out of my world and and what I was around you know let's take a listen to Aladdin saying David Bowie Strange divine 
that was Aladdin sound from <laughs> David Bowie's Aladdin sound. David Bowie's uh, worst album. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we were just we were just discussing the merits and demerits of that record. But that was um, you were what eleven when you first heard yeah. that at your friend's house. Um, and then you went out separately and bought it later. I'm not sure if I heard it at my friend's house at the time. I remember like Bowie pinups being at the the one I saw at their house and listening to. And then I just remember just seeing the cover in the record store and it was just so strong and such a striking kind of image. And like I said, it's just so different to anything in, in my world, you know. So I was just really drawn to it, probably more on a, on a visual basis, you know. And then as we discussed uh, off air... <laughs> <laughs> um, there's probably better albums for Bowie, you know, and, and uh, there's something about this that always has a spot in my heart, probably due to the fact that it's one of the first records I've bought and just the sort of imagery of it, you know? It's funny because one of my questions was, did the album cover make a big impression? It made a massive impression, <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. yeah. I feel like even, you know, looking at what you've done over, you know, the years, that whole idea of being able to pull in these different aspects of kind of art and create something of a whole um, which isn't just business it isn't just music it's you know it's kind of the whole presentation and someone like Bowie and actually a lot of those records you know Beatles Bowie they'd really think about it as this whole story and the cover could be as powerful as the track listing. Mm. Um, And also wasn't the Bowie is later on the Bowie is exhibition you went to oh yeah it was amazing it, was, it really blew my mind uh, that what well i don't even know what it's called bowie it, is bowie, bowie is yeah there you go <laughs> but i remember I went to the va and i just had to get in i said it sold out sold out i went down there and begged and i think i went there with my partner at the time and i don't know if our daughter was with us or not but we basically we were on the way to the airport and somehow i managed that we, if we went there right then and there we could get in and i remember like had bags waiting in a car out we rushed in and then we ran through the whole thing i was like this is heaven <laughs> you know it was amazing and like just the whole stuff with the, the artwork and the visual stuff. I mean, I think music being an emotive or having an emotive capacity, you know, so does your sort of your eyes and all your senses. So when I was working mostly probably, <clears throat> actually even promoting, like we were always trying to make engaging sort of artwork for a lot of the tours and stuff. And, and definitely when we had modular and trying to make like, compelling videos and sort of album artwork and graphic design and you know um placing those elements all together or combining all those elements with the music side was for me really fulfilling anyway and i probably enjoy that part way more than any other any other part to do with like putting out records putting on shows and sort of all the admin stuff real life stuff i just not interested in I totally get you. <laughs> so tell me about escaping to Sydney, age 18, in the boot of a Kingswood. <laughs> oh, my God. Do you even know what a Kingswood is? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, firstly, you couldn't fit. I mean, I could fit in a boot of a Kingswood if I was probably chopped up and dying. But, like, um, no, I, I left camp when I was 18 with some friends of mine were in a band, and they were moving to Sydney, and I'd recently just sort of woke up one morning and had a sort of bolt upright epiphany. You know, I'm like, oh my God, what am I doing? I'm 18 years old. I'm working at a YMCA. I've got a serious job. I'm going out with Rosalind Dixon. I'll be married to her living in the suburbs of Canberra. Fuck, what am I going to do? So I went to work that day and just resigned. 
And I came home and I'm like, Rosalind, I got something to tell you. <laughs> I'm, I love you, but I'm, I'm not, I don't want to be with you anymore. See you later. And I've been out with her for the last couple of years, sort of end of school. And it really felt like we were going to, we were going to suburbia, <laughs> early childhood, life, and, you know, having kids, there's a whole lot. And just, I had a total freak out. So I split up with her. And then the, within a week or two, I was talking to my friends and they were traveling up to, uh, to Sydney. And I'm like, why don't I get a ride with you guys? I thought, this is it. Just something will happen. So I jumped in the, the, the van, not the Kingswood, with those guys. Where is there a quote <laughs> saying a boot of a Kingswood? <laughs> I don't know. You're, you, you're on the one on the World Wide Web, not me. <laughs> um, so anyway, I, I got a ride with those guys. And by the end of the trip, they were like, hey, you know what? You used to organize a lot of stuff at the YMCA, right? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I did. And so uh, they're like, why don't you organize our shows and stuff and uh, help us manage whatever we're doing? I'm like, sounds like a great idea. So by that trip, we then went into some big terrace sort of house with tons of different rooms in it and I ended up just living there with those guys and started booking their shows and helping them out and then that's kind of how I got started in the music business. And from managing you then went on to have a succession of jobs you say you weren't qualified for like what did some of those include? (laughs) Making ice cream. (laughs) (laughs) Well firstly being a manager, I wasn't qualified for. And then I started running this club or like a venue in the city. And, um, you know, at that point, you know, uh, I was getting unemployment benefits as well, which I'd consider were like a creative arts grant. And But then you had to go and apply for jobs. So I would occasionally go apply for jobs and then occasionally even get a job. And one day I remember I got a, sh- a, a, a job in a like a food court area, pushing ice cream and sodas and stuff. And then I was like, look, you know, I'm really struggling with this whole full-time work thing. Do you, do, you, do you mind if I maybe split the job with a friend of mine who's also in the band and he needs a little bit of work and I need a little bit of work, but maybe this would be best served if we did it together. And they're like, yeah, of course. So, And then um, then he didn't show up for work and I got fired. Wow. <laughs> so, that, yeah, that worked real well. But then I started running the club stuff and that started really kind of taking off and I guess was the... the the foundations for what I ended up doing as a promoter, you know. And was it, did you feel it was natural moving from local promoting to touring international bands? I did. I mean, when I started the uh, promoting the club, I was mostly just booking domestic artists uh, in and out of the venue. And because of the relationship with the band I first started managing, I got to travel around Australia a bit and go to different sort of venues and whatnot and do the circuit. So I had an understanding of like what the national landscape looked like, but predominantly I was working just in Sydney in the, this particular venue. And at some point the guy that ran or owned the venue said, look, you know, you're doing really well with this. Um, if there's anything else you want to do, I would back you to do it. I'm like, well, my friends at this, uh, well, I, I said this band I know wanted to come to Australia. And at the time I'd, you know, used to go to our local import store, it was called Waterfront Records. And um, the guys that worked there also had their own label and they did a lot of sort of hardcore punk sort of stuff out of Australia. They're also licensing records and they ended up licensing Nirvana's Bleach album. So they were dealing with Sub Pop a lot. So they were like, hey, we know the guys from Mudhoney want to come to Australia. Why don't you do it? I'm like, okay, I'd love to do it. So I just rang up, I think, Jonathan at Sub Pop and said, hey, I want to bring Mudhoney. He goes, great, they'd love to come. And it was kind of as simple as that. And so then um, I brought Mudhoney to Australia, which kind of worked out really well. And then I was like, Again, another very strong moment, like, this is what I want to do. I don't want to muck around anymore booking venues. I love this. This was a lot of fun, you know, doing the whole national thing and working with those artists. And then from there, I just went on to then I started 
I think Mudhoney came back and then the guys from Fagazi were talking to them one day and said, look, we want to go to Australia. Can you recommend anyone? They're like, yeah, you should work with our friend Pav. So Ian called me up and was like, we want to come to Australia. And I'm like, can do. So then I started booking Fagazi and I think my bloody Valentine, Lemonheads. Our good friend Janet Billick was like managing Lemonheads at the time. Oh, no, she was best friends with Tom, that's right. So, um, yeah, I just fell into this moment where a lot of that sort of American alternative, sort of independent sort of stuff, um, I was of a similar age to a lot of people that were touring and a lot of them didn't really have super powerful managers, agents kind of mm. thing yet. And it was just very personable and there was just, I think once you were, you know, everyone talked to each other, they'd all see each other across routes, touring or whatever. So I think once you got in with somebody, it was very easy for them to just start calling. I mean, I, most people called me, so I always worked out. It was a pretty good situation. And that DIY sort of underground approach, which just wouldn't exist today, um, and people then probably seeing you as a friend or someone they could trust and then recommending other bands, is that how Nirvana came in? Yeah, well, um, the Mudhoney guys, they had a great time. They're like, you should tour our friends Nirvana. And I'm well aware and Bleach has already come out at this point. I'm like, you know, I'd love to do that. So they're like, well, here's Chris's number and here's Kurt's number. So they just gave me their phone numbers. And I would just ring them up and say, hey, you guys want to come to Australia? They're like, yeah, we'd love to, but we're busy making this record. And when it's done, we'll, we'll come down. I'm like, okay. So I just touch base with them every few months. And I went to Seattle and then um, Dan from Mudhoney might have been playing with those guys for a little bit. And he was like, look, come meet the guys. So I went and met Kurt and Chris and they're like, yeah, yeah, we want to come. We're just getting on with this record. <clears throat> At the time, they didn't have a manager or, or I didn't know if they had an agent. But then um, by the end of it, uh, and which the album was obviously Nevermind, and when they got around to it all coming together, I rang them one day and they're like, we have this manager now, this guy, John Silver, you should call him. So I called John, who I knew, because he also managed Sonic Youth at the time, and I'd been trying to get them to Australia for a while. So it all kind of just came together seamlessly. It was like, like that thing, friends would recommend friends, and I think if you... I, was, I wouldn't say I, I was the best promoter in the world, but, like, I was an affable kind of guy, and I was super into it, and it was kind of like my dream sort of world, you know? When did you ultimately lose interest on just... <laughs> <laughs> the show, or no. just, like... <laughs> Life. Just the focus, <laughs> just that focus on only sort of touring, promoting. I think, you know, you're right. I definitely lost interest. So I've worked this out later in life is that I have about a, at best 10-year concentration span. So when I was promoting and when I first started, it was just super fun and exciting and it was we were able to create our own artwork, work out what venues we wanted to do and it was sort of creative in its own way. And then by the end of it, like in the early 90s when I started that, a lot of those bands weren't as popular as they became and a lot of that whole world wasn't as popular. So then by the mid to late 90s, everyone had CAA, WME, who were probably called something else at the time, or whatever, these super big agents, they all had like super management. And I started to feel like I was in a public service. I mean, an agent would just call me and say, okay, so um, whatever band, Green Day wants to come to Australia and so we want you to play this venue, here's the artwork, here's that. You just get told what to do and then they're like, and if it all work out, well, you'll make a little bit on the end. And if it doesn't, you're like, well, so I'm basically paying all this money and taking all this risk just to stamp papers, just do what I'm told and it just felt so unfulfilling. I mean, I could have been in a bank or I could have been working for the public service. I don't know. It was just so uninteresting to me. And then... I lost interest in it and then like most things, uh, not most things, but a lot of things, 
um, like a bad relationship where you kind of know intuitively that you should probably break up with somebody or split or end this relationship, but you actually don't do anything about it. You just kind of let it meander and become more sort of soulless and sort of fall apart of its own volition rather than you taking charge and going, you're not cutting that off. So I did that with the touring stuff, which is about 98. And then a friend of mine was an English guy. was like um, a friend of his was coming to Australia to run EMI Records. And he was like, oh, you should meet my friend Tony. He's coming to Australia, doesn't know anybody, much like the situation with Janet. <laughs> we should go have a coffee, take him to the beach, blah, blah, blah. So I did that. And then Tony's a good guy. He's running EMI. He's like, have you ever thought about doing a record label? I'm like, yeah, well, I used to do one. And I just thought I'd never do it again unless I had the right circumstances. And he was like, well, whatever those circumstances are, I'd be happy to provide them. So I'm like, oh, great. So at that point, I started Modular, and then the touring thing totally just disappeared. And what were the things that you found came natural to you with Modular? Because I guess by that point, you'd amassed so many skills in all these other areas of the business. Yeah, I think when I started Modular, I knew nothing about sort of the recording industry per se. Um, I just knew that that as a promoter, a lot of the Australian bands that we would put on the international ones that we were touring as, as opening acts, supporting acts, I found that a lot of those went on to become very popular in Australia. So I feel like I had a good sense for what was kind of what people liked. What you know, I just found basically I would chase or assign things that resonated with me and that I'm pretty average dude and so that would obviously resonate with other people and some more so than others. So... When I started Modular, we signed the Avalanches. It was the first group I signed. And they more or less sent me a demo tape to... They wanted to open up for someone I was touring. And then I heard the thing. And I said, look, this is great. I'm thinking about doing a record label. Have you guys got a record label? And they're like, no, they, they didn't have one at the time. So we put out their first EP on just a made-up label. And I said, look, why don't we just put this out because it's great and you want to go touring? And then I'm working on this other scenario, which was then modular with EMI. And I said, if that comes to fruition, then we could enter on a longer term arrangement. So we put the EP out, I think it was on Wondergram, which is the name of a little sort of 50s portable record player that I had. And then throughout that, then I moved on to then doing the modular EMI deal. And what do you feel most proud about with just the whole creation of modular? Um, hmm. I don't know. I'm not sure I'm proud of the word. I mean, I thought about it the other day. I'm like, and, and often when I do run my course of interest on things, I kind of just get relegated to the past and I don't really think about it much and I definitely don't miss any of it. I think with the module thing, maybe I just feel proud that I was able to help some people realise their potential and, you know, it makes me happy to see that, you know, people like Cut Copy or Avalanches, Tame and Part have all been able to have substantial careers you know and I mean substantial enough that they can do what they're, they're interested in they don't have to work they've been able to travel around the world and probably do things that I think they would never have imagined that they were able to they would never imagine that was going to happen I mean it might have been a hope or a dream but I think a lot of them when they first came across and probably couldn't believe that where they ended up today you know and so to be a part of that's kind of nice when I think what makes you special one of the things that makes you special is you know, you're leading with like your gut and and your intuition and passion and appreciation for like creativity rather than you know how how much am I going to make or how many you know how many records is this going to sell hmm. well I mean don't get me wrong I like money a lot and like um 
you know, but there was never really, I think, you know, commercial success, I'm talking commerce in terms of money, whatever, or, you know, critical success, all those things are like a byproduct of doing something well or having some passion for it. And if you get too focused on that, I think it throws out your natural swerve on, on the other one. So I think we've always just found, or I always found, and came across people that I believed in what they were doing. I saw something really great in it. Um, I thought it'd be great to be able to be a part of that journey and to just focus on, like, let's just make the best possible record, you know, and let's put all the other stuff to the side. And then if we do this part really well, then the rest will take care of itself, you know. So that's always fun to, 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 to be involved in that, what, that capacity. So now I have to ask, what music would you send into space? Well, I sent you a few choices. I can't remember which one I chose. Niels Fram. Okay, Niels Fram. Okay, well, I guess um, I think you could, you could send anything into space because it's the great unknown. <laughs> so there's no sort of... Terrible reason. <laughs> but it's the great unknown, so there's no judgment on it anyway. And I mean, I, I, I look, you know... That Nils Fram record Spaces, I think, is amazing. The fact that it says Spaces and it's space. But, um, you know, the track Says, I think, is just really hypnotic to me. And it's sort of this sort of deep, unfolding, sort of growing sort of track. And I just feel like I imagine that's what space might feel like as you were going through it. Just this endless sort of unfolding, you know. I was going to send you some other ones that just kind of went nowhere. And I thought maybe that's what space is as well. You're just kind of going nowhere for a really long time. But in the end, I think space is, uh, yeah. I mean, okay. Play Let, that tune. Let's take a listen. Says by Niels Fram. When they do the, the hot for light speed, light speed. <laughs> so that was says by Nils Fram, and that was the piece of music that Pav would send into space uh, off the record Spaces. So just being a pioneer in multiple areas of the industry, which, you know, you really have been, was that ever also a poison chalice? Hmm, I'm not sure, like, pioneer. I don't know, but, like... I think a person getting to do what they want in a sort of uncompromising way, um, that was kind of pretty awesome, right? Um, but then, I don't know if it's a poison chalice. Like I said, I think my, if, I, if I have a poison chalice, it's just my concentration. I get, just get bored. Um, which a friend of mine said to me, um, this guy that ran Warners, was like, you know what's really good about you and your A&R is that you've just got no concentration span. It makes you really good at it because then you've got to find something new to keep yourself interested. So he said, that makes you a great A&R guy. I'm like, really? I don't know if that sits well on my CV, but anyway, I'll go with it. So I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if I can answer that question that well. And you curated Sydney's Vivid Live um, at the Opera House in its third year following Lou Reed, Laurie Anderson and Brian Eno. How did you find curating a whole... Two, was it two weeks? Yeah, it was two weeks. And um, you were doing everything, all the lighting, the sound. Well, first they were like, um, I got asked to do it, which I thought was fantastic, and they were interested, I think. I mean, I think after the Lou Reed year, they found that um, perhaps not having any understanding of the local market 
maybe wasn't as uh, wasn't as a great thing for them. I think they found that like Louis would put on a program or only New York artists, which was cool because that was his that was his vision. Except some of them had been there like three months earlier or six months earlier, and so it was like, well, there's all these local artists that don't get to play, and you know they just found that there was a bit a bit off in some way and so anyway they asked me to do it and they're like well you understand the local stuff and the international stuff and I think we probably sold three or four as many times as tickets which I think from their point of view they're happy about I remember them saying at the the time they're like well you know so if you curate the whole thing for us you know you've got to do the lighting on the opera house on the sales which is the outside of the opera house building and um, they said because like Brian Eno had projected his artwork up there and Laurie Anderson had done some sort of piece on, on the building and I was like, wow, so my first, uh, I mean, I haven't even lit a Christmas tree before. My, my first gig's doing the opera house, sick. <laughs> um, and uh, that was pretty exciting. So I remember the time I, I had an idea. I had about several ideas which they just wouldn't let me go near. And they're like, dude, it's the opera house. You can't touch it. And I'm like, well, what if I turn it into a giant fucking swan and put a black head on it and just painted it black and, and stick it in the water? And they're like, you can't do that, dude. And I'm like, oh, what if I got all the, the naval boats in the harbour to point at it and then people coming out of helicopters so it's like this performance art piece of a terrorist attack on the <laughs> opera house and like, dude, you can't mess with the opera house. I'm like, all right, all right, all right. So in the end I got this French company called um, Super BN. At the time I looked at a lot of 3D mapping stuff which I generally find boring as batshit and like I was talking about when people can learn like scales and play them perfectly in patterns a lot of 3D mapping stuff for me is like it's an execution of a program that's done really well but a lot of it doesn't have a lot of soul or warmth or heart and I came across these French guys that did that stuff but it had a deep deep sort of feeling to it and I said look guys I got this idea this concept's about synesthesia so um they then went away and did and made a lot of content around that sort of theme and they came back to us and we sort of workshopped some of it and did some pretty awesome stuff. And then I asked a bunch of people and I started out with that whole theme with the colours and the look and synesthesia and whatnot that a lot of things I wanted wasn't available. And then I remember I just rang up Robert Smith at the time. I'd communicated with him about another project we were doing for Modular and so I sent me an email and said, you want to play at the Opera House? And he's like, uh, you know, the first thing is you get an auto response saying, hello, this is Robert Smith. I only answer emails on Tuesdays and Thursdays. If you need an answer beforehand, the answer is no. Aloha. <laughs> like, what's happened to Robert Smith? Does he sit on a beach now in Hawaii in like a wine shirt with an umbrella on and drinking cocktails? Like, aloha. So eventually he came back and so he asked, could he do the first three albums in their entirety in the Opera House. And I'm like, yeah, no, nah, I'm not cool with that, right? So, yeah, so he came and they did uh, those three albums, which was pretty special. We did, th- you know, three-piece, four-piece, five-piece, and then each record, I think, was 40 minutes each, and then a 20-minute interval and played the next one, and then 20-minute interval and did them like that. So, anyway, it was a lot of fun. It was a great project to be involved in, you know? And I think, you know, out of all the things I've ever done, I would say the, the the Opera House was probably the greatest leg opener, hands down. The moment you mention to anyone, do you want to play at the Opera House? Everyone is like, oh, my God, I've always wanted to go there. I've always wanted to play there. So it was a really easy thing to program. It's not like trying, you're not trying to sell something to people. You know, they all knew exactly what it was, where it was, and they'd always wanted to play there, you know. So as someone who can never do the same thing twice, what are you excited about now? Uh, um, 
Yeah, I'm, I'm excited about a few things. Like I'm, I'm excited about doing something new that is combining all the previous experiences I've had and wrapping them up into some new way of doing it or new format. And that's kind of interesting to me. Like I've been offered a few sort of jobs and things putting on concerts or festivals or putting out, you know, starting a new record label and stuff. And I just can't go there. It just doesn't seem interesting to me enough. And so uh, there's this concept thing I've been working on for a little bit that is about evolving those things into something for me would be just different and in some way engaging, you know. So not really answering your question too much. No, watch this space. Very excited about that. Um, So now we move to the very deeply tragic part of the show where you pass away and what song would you have at your memorial well i probably wouldn't have one because i wouldn't be there to enjoy it so um i find it pretty narcissistic behavior of many people to sit around sweating over their funeral songs and i'm like well why would you bother you're not there you're not going to hear it and subjecting people to your you know, your choice of what, some way you identify this track. And I mean, I could maybe, if I I could do like, okay, here's one for Dub Lab audience. I could do a KCRW one. And I could maybe do it uh, like, what's that rock station in LA called? The big one? Uh, K-Rock. K-Rock. Yeah. You could have a moment. <laughs> you could choose a song for each of those stations depending on what your audience is. Yeah, I'm But isn't that it. more indulgent? I feel like that's more indulgent because then you're making choices. No, 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 for... no, no, no. That's what I'm saying. That's why I couldn't actually yeah. choose a song because I feel like you'd be making so such indulgent, dramatic choices for people that's like, I don't know, it's kind of to me irrelevant. irrelevant. However, uh, Seabird by the Alessia Brothers is a pretty sweet track. I can imagine kind of, and the other thing is, I find a funeral, I want to do it in the dark and I think it should be at night and it should be, a lot of people with candles and then you should kind of maybe, if you did have a song, I would probably have it without words. It will probably be more of an instrumental track and it would sort of end with some, you, in, uh, you can take your ashes now and you can put in fireworks and so you could be cremated, have everyone play this good tune, walk around a path, candles on and then boom, up go the fireworks with your ashes in the sky and that's it. With that beautiful picture in mind, let's take a listen to Seabird by Alessi Brothers. was Seabird by Alessi Brothers and that was the song that Pav would choose to have at his memorial with a whole experience that he's clearly already curated in his mind. Um, So I guess the only last Orange Juice for the Year choice uh, to ask you is what record you'd pass on to your kids. Well, definitely kid. You have one daughter called Coco. I do. Um, well, it's a, again, it'd be a tough choice, but like I think you could put one of many. But this one I particularly like, and I was listening to recently, and um, I was pretty moved by the capacity it has for like sort of has despair in it. It has hope in it. It has 
many, many sort of human feelings. And I feel like if you wanted to share something with somebody from my point of view, I want to be able to express the emotive capacity of like music and of an album. And I think when you can feel all the things that that record makes you feel, it's a pretty good start. And whether that be from a Beatles album or many, many, many different kinds of records, I think you need to have the quality of what that album had, the essence of it. And it's that journey you have on sort of every experience from like dark and brooding to like light and hopeful. All these kind of things are pretty amazing. And I think that record sums it up pretty well. And what's the record? I don't know. It's XX. <laughs> Oh, yeah. XX. <laughs> yeah. The song is called uh, <laughs> Islands. <laughs> um, so what is the thread that connects all of your Orange Juice for the Year choices? Um, well, the things that I've thought about and, um, you know, I don't know, they are, well, I guess they're honest. Honesty. And my last question, Pav, what is it that you hope to leave behind with all the work that you've done and the work that you continue to do? joy some amount of joy for people you know i think if you can find the ability for something to make you feel good in any capacity or bring some joyous moment to you i think it's great you know and job well done what a perfect note to end on pav thank you so much for being here you're welcome thank you for having me and let's take a listen to islands by the xx